be seated. Well, today we, we come to probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. I mean, when you think about it, this verse is well known throughout the church, uh, regardless of denomination, regardless of culture. People know what you are referencing uh, when you say John 3.16. But you know, when you think about it, it's not only within the church, but also within pop culture. I mean, you, you can see references to this on t-shirts and jewelry and mugs. Uh, I have seen the, the reference inscribed on the bottom of paper cups that you get from fast food restaurants. Uh, I started to get curious and wondered if maybe John 3.16 has its own Wikipedia page. And guess what? It does. Uh, that's where I do most of my sermon prep. Uh, but, you know, you, you, see this, you see this scripture reference in sporting events all the time, whether it's uh, basketball, uh, baseball, soccer, hockey. But most often it seems like you see somebody holding up a John 3.16 sign in a football game. And as I got thinking about it, I realized, and I watch a, a lot of, of college football, not so much on, on Saturday uh, when I'm watching college football, but in the NFL, a Sunday afternoon, that's when you see it the most. So I, I started scratching my head and wondering, why is this? So I have a theory, and I'm serious about this theory, because I've, I've now had two weeks to think about it. <clears throat> But, you know, if you're going to go to an NFL football game, most of us don't live within a half hour or an hour of the professional football stadium. So let's just say that Steve decides he's going to go. He gets his tickets on StubHub. Uh, he's, he's excited for the game, but he knows, one, he's got to leave earlier than normal to get to this particular venue because traffic's going to be heavier than usual. You've got to arrive at least an hour before the game so you can park and, and make it inside the stadium before kickoff. And Steve has realized, I mean, he's excited because his tickets are in the end zone, lower end zone level. So he's going to be right there for the goal line stands or the rushing touchdown or whatever. It's an exciting place to be. But he's also smart enough to realize he's going to get some TV time. And he realizes there's also a chance that after church that day, which he probably wasn't able to make. His pastor may go home and watch some of the game. And the TV all of a sudden pans the cameras, and there's Steve. What does he do? His pastor's called him. John 3.16. I may not have been at church, but I was evangelizing on national television. And that really is my theory. I think that, it's, I think that that's it. But, of course, my, of course, my point is, is that we are so familiar with this verse. It is, it, it is so famous among us. But then the question is, are we really familiar enough? Have we gotten so used to it that we don't really hear it anymore? We don't really understand it in its larger context. And that's what we're going to seek to do to, to look at it at least a bit in the larger context. A context where we find it in John's gospel. And so today we're going to look at John chapter 3, uh, verses 16 to 21. Uh, if you're using the Bible 
under the chair in front of you, you will find that on page 888. Well, let's pray, and then we will hear God's word. Once again, Lord, we do thank you for your word, which brings light and breathes life into our very hearts, which we pray would happen right now. We ask that you would would now help us to hear, help us to, to hear afresh your word and to be challenged and changed by your grace to us in Jesus. So hear the word of God, Uh, John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, the verdict. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, whoever lives by the truth, comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And this is the word of God, and it is given to us for our good and his glory. And so let's turn to it now. Well, clearly, as you read through that passage, as as you heard me uh, read it for us, there is talk here of condemnation as well as compassion. I mean, John 3.16 is definitely a verse about God's compassion. Uh, Many commentators have called it the greatest summary of the gospel. But it's only rightly understood in its larger context, uh, which deals with condemnation. And so that's how we're going to look at the passage today in those two parts, condemnation and compassion. And so let's start with condemnation. We go straight to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Well, this has already been reflected in the famous verse, verse 16, because if you think about it, if those who believe in God's Son shall not perish but have eternal life, then those who don't believe in Him shall perish and have eternal misery. No surprise, but this is not popular teaching in our culture. People do not want to hear this. But the sad thing is, it's not even popular teaching in a lot of churches, even though it's in God's Word. You know, uh, you think of of words like sin and and condemnation, uh, 
God's anger and wrath, hell. A lot of churches have just removed these words from their language, from their speaking. I, I was, was reminded of, of a TV interview, uh, a, a TV pastor who's got a lot of New York Times bestsellers, was being interviewed on 60 Minutes. I don't know whether the interviewer was a, a, is a Christian or not, didn't necessarily present himself to be so, but, but as they were in this, this long dialogue, first talking about the preaching, they then got around to his latest book. And it struck me when the interviewer said very pointedly, you know, in, in your, your book, in all your books, but this one that we're talking about now, you, you don't have any mention of sin or hell or condemnation or God's wrath and anger, and yet the Bible talks about those things. Why aren't they in your book? And with a big smile on his face, he said, Friend, there is so much negativity in the world already. I want to have a, a positive message. Well, by contrast, and in context, I mean, the gospel writer John does have a positive message. But he only speaks of the love of God in the context of, of sin and condemnation, which, which we find here. And the gospel writer John speaks about that throughout his gospel. In fact, not only here in these few verses, but also re-emphasizing it at the very end of chapter 3. Now, the last verse, last verse reads this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Another translation puts it like this. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath against sin. A sin living our own way being our own authority, uh, turning from God, rejecting his son. <clears throat> and wrath. When, whenever the Bible talks about God's wrath, it's talking about God's settled opposition to evil. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, a God of wrath and anger? I mean, come on, isn't that the Old Testament God? We're a New Testament people what about the God of love? You see, the problem is we think that anger and love are opposed to each other. But they aren't. And it's actually in God's wrath that we more clearly see the fury of his love. His furious love. I, I came across this illustration in my, my study in, in preparation for this passage. Uh, I was... Uh, Reminded of, of an author, an evangelist, who I was, I was first introduced to in college, uh, Becky Pippert. Some of you know uh, Becky Pippert. Uh, yeah, a, a, a great evangelist and, and an excellent writer as well. And one of her books is entitled, Hope Has Its Reasons, uh, where she talks about God's anger. And there's a section in which she discusses this, and she says that, that we struggle with the idea of an angry God because we all think of God is, is a God of love, and so then we begin to wonder, well, how could God be angry against sin and condemn? And she writes, well, think of how we feel 
when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships? How do we feel? Do we respond with benign tolerance? And then she goes on and she talks about two of her friends. She, she shares about uh, two very close friends uh, of hers who are sinking uh, deeper and deeper into destruction because of substance abuse. And she says, I feel fury when I'm with them. Fury because I love them. Everything in me wants to shake them, to say, can't you see? Don't you know what you are doing to yourself? You become less and less of yourself every time I see you. And then she writes this. Real love. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys you see, anger and love are inseparably bound even in our own human experience. And if I, a flawed and sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone else's condition, then how much more a morally perfect God who made them. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. See, love and anger aren't opposed to each other. God is angry because he loves his creation. And there's a cancer in his creation. And that cancer is sin. That cancer is evil. And he's determined to eradicate it. In fact, he must deal with it because he can't just have a, a benign tolerance toward it. Again, it's in God's wrath that we more clearly see the fury of his love, his furious love, his determined compassion. And that leads to our next point. And so we've talked about condemnation. Uh, let's take some time now and talk about compassion. Compassion. Verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, there are clearly some words that we should talk about here. Define, address, in fact, somebody actually emailed and said, could you please address the word world. So that's where we'll, we'll start. Uh, the word world. For God so loved the world. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. All right, it's, it is easy to be confused by the language that John uses here. Uh, no doubt. And so, so if, you know, the question comes up, if, if God gave his son for the world, does this imply that every single person on earth will be saved. No, it doesn't. That, that's not what John is talking about. John isn't talking about the world in its totality, but in its diversity. In its diversity as, as well as its sinfulness. And so world refers to, and, and John later puts it this way, in the book of Revelation, 
A world refers to people from every tribe, every language, and tongue, and nation. As one commentator puts it, the love of God is staggering, in part because of whom it embraces. God so loved the world. And love can be measured in terms of whom it reaches. It's one thing to love family and friends, but something altogether different to reach out to strangers and outcasts and enemies. So it is with God who loves the world, the sinful people of his creation who are in rebellion against him. And we can only begin to appreciate the beauty of God's love when we grasp something of the ugliness of our sin. God's love embraces not those who are his friends, but those who are his enemies. <clears throat> well, then there's that little word, so. If you just read past that one, for God so loved the world. Well, on the, on the one hand, it means how much, the depth and degree of God's love. God loves the world so much, which is true. But on the other hand, it means in this way. In, in other words, the manner or means of God's love. And so the, the tenses of the Greek verbs express it along these lines. This is how. God loved the world. He gave his son. Or, in this way, God loved the world. He gave his son. You see, God's love for the world wasn't mere sentiment, but led to a specific action. He gave his only son. A specific action in love for us. Well, he gave his only son. So, only son, that phrase, I mean, I've got to address this one because some of you are already saying, what happened to begotten? Begotten, didn't he give his only begotten son? Well, the Greek word underlying only, it simply means one of a kind, unique. And so, really only, it's actually a better uh, translation than only begotten, which was made familiar through the King James Version. Not going to try to battle out, you know, translations of the Bible here. Because my, my point is this. The point is that in compassion, God gave his unique, one-of-a-kind son to save us. That's what he did, a specific action. As theologian Bruce Milne puts it, If the depth of love is measured by the value of its gift, then God's love could not be greater. For his love gift is his most precious relationship, his one and only eternally beloved son he could not love more and he gave him to rescue us condemnation is not God's specific purpose rather his purpose is salvation for all who trust in his son and that salvation could only be accomplished on the cross if you truly want to understand God's compassion, you must look to the cross of Christ. God can only be understood if you understand the cross. Because on the cross, the wrath of God and the love of God meet 
and are satisfied. Another uh, pastor helped me think about it this way. So, so if, if, if God, if, if he's really a God of wrath and a God of love, then he's saying, how can I pour out my wrath against sin? The cancerous tumors growing throughout my creation and destroy it, but without destroying everyone who has a tumor. The answer is verse 16. He gave his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Because his son serves as a substitute. He bears the blame. On the cross, Jesus takes the punishment, the condemnation for our sin so that we can know the love the compassion of God. And continuing with this illustration of, of sin as cancer, think about God's wrath on sin. Think about God's wrath as lethal radiation aimed at the cancer. But Jesus Christ is the protective covering. It's like the covering that the, the radiation oncologist puts over the rest of your body except for the part that's supposed to get the radiation. If you come under his covering, your cancerous tumor is dealt with. Your sin is dealt with. But you aren't destroyed in the process. John Stott puts it like this. Man asserts himself against God. And puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man. And puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's the cross. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That's the cross. The cross means that if you believe in Jesus that there is now no condemnation left for you because it's all been placed on him. On the cross, both the love of God for you and the wrath of God against sin meet and are satisfied. And so it's in looking to the cross, trusting in the finished work of Christ. It's in believing in him that you are forgiven of all sin and reconciled eternally to God. And it's in continuing to believe this, continuing to believe, growing in that belief, that you'll know true hope and taste real joy now through the eternal life that's been born in you. So do you see how these two work together, how they come together, condemnation and compassion? You see how that works? Condemnation. If you want to see, and you need to see, just how bad your sin really is, and, and what, it, what it took to, to put your condemnation on Jesus, then look to the cross. Because you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared imagine. 
but there's also compassion. Because if you want to see just how very much you are really loved, what God would do in compassion to rescue you, then look to the cross. Because in Christ, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Believe in Jesus and keep believing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, our good and gracious and compassionate God, we do thank you. We thank you once again that you love us, that you gave yourself for us. And we pray now that you would help us to trust you. And whether that be for the first time right here, right now, this morning, or helping us to trust you again and again and again throughout a lifetime, we pray that you would help us. We believe, but help our unbelief. And it's in Jesus we pray.